Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Okay, step 10, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Um, believe it or not, uh, I actually got to do, I started doing this step when I was in rehab, I mean, in, in the sense that when I was in rehab, they gave me like a worksheet that was a step 10 worksheet, and it was, you know, it was a lot of the questions on page um, 86, which are actually found in the 11th step, um, but I had a really very cool experience with it because one of the things it actually says on page 85 is that we can, um, or actually I guess it's on 87, is, you know, to invite other people into this process with us, that sometimes it breaks down the barriers of the, um, the barriers that we put up with each other and the defenses that we have up with each other. Um, and it can actually have, um, invite them in. You can create an intimacy. And my first experience with that was I actually would do this with my stepfather at night when I came home from rehab. And uh, it was really, it was very positive for us because we never got along before that. And now all of a sudden when I came back from rehab, he had a son that died from this disease about five years prior. So when I came home from rehab, he was um, very open to me and I was very open to him. So that was, that was beautiful. But one of the things um, for me on step 10 is that when I read pages 84 to 85, there is so much stuff in there, like so much stuff. It talks about the fact that we continue to take personal inventory and we continue to set right any mistakes as we go along. So here's the deal. This process doesn't end. It's just four through nine was when we teach you the tools. Ten says you just keep doing it. You know, I have some sponsees that I work with who are like, you know, I thought I was done with resentments. I'm like, are you breathing? Because if you're breathing, you're going to have resentments. It happens. A, you're an alcoholic, and B, you're human. People are going to make you angry. It happens. But the fact is, is that that will happen. We just need to make sure that we have the tools to know what to do when that happens. Because we are not like normal people, like we've already talked about. Um, so it says that we continue to do this. And it says we vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. Now, it talks about this way of living. This way of living that they're talking about is steps four through nine. It's those tools that are used on a daily basis, on a continuous basis. And we vigorously attack life with it. We show up to life with this excitement and raring to go. And this happens to me actually at work. And, you know, I work, uh, I work in a place where probably actually I would have to say most of the world is like this, but I work in a place where it's not really common to take responsibility for your mistakes, right? And it's not really common if somebody brings a problem to you for you to be like, okay, how can I fix it? But thank God for this program. I had this one person that I was working with um, about a year and a half ago. And uh, I could tell that he was kind of giving me an attitude. And I was like, I don't know what his deal is. So I would send him, you know, an email of like, this is what needs to be done. And can you get this to me, um, you know, by whatever date? And I would just would never hear from him. And then he would never do it. And so I would go to him and be like, did you do that? And he's like, oh, yeah. And I'm like awesome. Can I have it? And he's like, yeah, I gave it to you. I'm like, okay, I don't see it. Um, can I have it again? Oh, maybe you should be more organized. I'm like, 
okay. And what keeps going through my head right now is what we'll get into in terms of uh, step 11. But I did the pause. Like, don't rip his head off. I paused and I said, okay, is there something you want to talk about? Is there something that I've done that I don't know about? And he actually ended up telling me that I was demanding, I was difficult to work with, I was like all of these things, right? And my response to him was, okay, that was never my intention. I never meant to make you feel that way, and I apologize if I did. Can you tell me how I can make this better or how you would like me to come with you, come to you with tasks to do? And he was stumped. He did not know what to say at all. And so actually his response was he just was like, you're just ridiculous. And he stormed out. And I was like, okay. That's when I knew that this had nothing to do with me. <laughs> that's when I knew that that was just how he was and that's how he was going to be. And hopefully I wasn't going to have to work with him for very long. But we managed to find a middle ground for a little bit. But it was because of this way of living. It was because I was willing to take a look at my side, willing to unblock myself from God, ask God to remove the defects, make amends where necessary, and then bring it back to God again. And when it says we have vigorously commenced this way of life as we cleaned up the past, we start to do this as we're making amends. You don't wait to the end of the amends process because if you're anything like me, my amends, I still have one or two outstanding. I'm willing to make those amends at the drop of a hat the minute that person appears, and I have gone to a lot of lengths to try and find them. But I've also had a number of experiences where God puts them in your life, like, randomly. Like, I, I ran into somebody one time in, like, the Rome airport. And I was like, hey, I owe you an amends. How you doing? You know? So God literally has them show up randomly. So, you know, periodically I check Facebook or MySpace or LinkedIn to see if I can find them. And when I can, I say, okay, God, it is what it is. You'll show me whenever they'll appear whenever when you're ready. Um... But that doesn't mean that I get to sit back and do nothing now. I literally commence this way of life as we go forward. And here is one of the things that I love about Step 10. Because, again, back to the whole concept of, you know, I'm, I'm bad trying to be good, right? That's what I really thought about myself. Is that Step 10 basically tells us that we are going to make mistakes. Step 10 and 11 tells us that we are going to make mistakes. We are going to screw up, and that is okay. In fact, it's expected. We want you to, because how do I learn? I learn through my mistakes most often. So that's going to happen. and says our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Um, it talks about this not being an overnight matter, and it says here are the specific directions for Step 10. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Continue. Continue means all the time. Continue doesn't mean just at night. Continue doesn't mean just in the morning. Continue means every moment of every day. Continue to watch for your selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when they crop up, it doesn't say if they crop up. It says when they crop up because they will. Um, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately, and we make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Now, I, have, I, I do that. As things come up, I will, in whatever situation I'm in, I'll grab somebody and I'll even say, listen, am I crazy that this is what I'm thinking and this is what I see? And they'll help me right there. Um, 
Sometimes where it says, then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. For a long time, I thought I needed to turn in action to somebody I could help. And I'm like, you know, sometimes like I'm on an airplane and I don't have somebody necessarily who can help. Or, you know, sometimes I might be in the car or whatever. But somehow it might not present itself where I can actually be of service right there and then. But I can turn my thoughts to somebody I can help. I can turn my thoughts to think of somebody else. I can ask God, you know, okay, God, please remove this from me. I've made amends where necessary. I've discussed it with somebody. Now, you know, hmm, I wonder how, I wonder how so-and-so is doing now that her father just had brain surgery. I need to call her. God, I hope she's okay. God, please bless her. Please bless her with your grace and whatever your will is for them. Help them to accept it. And just that natural thought process right there. And um, it talks about, and Dave was saying this during the basket thing, is that love and tolerance of others is our code. And Love and tolerance of others is supposed to be our code. And at least I was taught that when you come to AA, the beauty of AA meetings and the fellowship is that not only do we have each other, and the we part of the program is the first word of the first step, and all the other steps depend upon the first step, right? So the we is absolutely necessary. The traditions hold the unity together. In fact, the forests talk about the fact that we either unify or we pass off the scene. We either become united or we die separately. That's our choice. So what better place and what better thing to do but to practice the love and tolerance in the rooms? That's where I always practice the principles that I'm learning. I will always try it first with you before I bring it out there because if I completely screw it up, I know you'll tell me, you know, or if I completely, you know, or I'm not doing it, it's not working very well. I know that in, for the most part, a loving person will come up and be like, so you were gossiping again. I'll be like, ah, oh, I didn't mean to do that, you know? And I have, and that's for me the importance and the beauty of a home group, home. When I walk into my home group, I feel at home. If you don't think you have the best home group, get a different one. You need to feel at home. There was this one group that I belonged to for years over in Secaucus, and I loved this meeting, loved it, loved it, loved it. But I especially loved because it had purple walls. And uh, they're actually, you know, a lot of people work the steps there, but not one person knew the big book at all. But I have never met such an incredible amount of people who were loving, non-judgmental, concerned about how my day was, and they knew the steps just through the step book. And it opened my eyes. I was like, this is fantastic. I learned so much from them. And I had an opportunity to learn um, to teach them also. And... Um, so the 10 step promises, so the love and tolerance of others is our code is really important. And I was taught that everything I learn in AA, I practice in AA first, and then I go out into the world and I try and practice it there. And um, it talks about, you know, the fact that we cease fighting anyone or anything, and even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. Um, those are two incredible promises. And I was taught that when you, once I'm done with the ninth step, sanity really does return, that all of a sudden, I can actually start to trust my thinking so long as I'm continuing the work. Now, does that mean that if I get this thought, like, I should move to Africa tomorrow because that's what God wants for me, I shouldn't run that by anybody? No, not at all. Um, it does mean that if I get this thought that I should move to Africa tomorrow, and then I call my sponsor, and I do talk to her about moving to Africa, that I will follow her direction and continue to bring it back to God and go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and see if this is really something worth looking at. 
And you laugh at the example, but this actually happened to me. I had a sponsee who one day after we had gotten through all the steps, she called me and she said, Anne-Marie, I know exactly what God's plan is. I said, what's that? She goes, I need to move to Tanzania and take care of the children. And I was like, okay, how do I respond to this? Because it says on the top of page 87, it says, you know, sometimes still being inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is probable, it is not probable we were going to be inspired all the time. We may pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Now, I am not saying moving to Tanzania and taking care of the children is a bad idea. I'm saying that you shouldn't do it tomorrow. I'm saying that you should really think about this. I'm saying you should explore your options. I'm saying you should pay attention to the inner voice inside of you and start asking God to show you. Ask for the willingness to follow whatever this voice is and see if it continues. Give it, give it 30 days. See what you can find out. And what ended up happening with that girl is that she actually did look into it and she moved to Tanzania for three months, worked in an orphanage and came back. And it's exactly what she needed to do. And it set her on a path here in New Jersey to work with children like she had never done before. So that inner voice calling her to Africa was right on. But if she had dropped everything, quit her job, moved out, left her family and just taken off and gone to Africa with no way back, like... Who knows? You know what I mean? So the coolest part about sponsoring for me is I get to see that voice in people start to wake up. I get to see that little light in people start to shine and start to be like, no, I do know what I need to do. And it's a confidence that it actually talks about in Dr. Bob's, in, uh, in uh, the doctor's opinion. It actually says when it describes us that we are a bunch who... Uh, that we are people who are self-confident. We are filled with self-confident and even more confident in a power greater than ourselves. So God fills me with this confidence because God is communicating with me. And um, step 10 is really important to continue to do that because when I have resentments come up, again, we go back to the whole point of four. They block me. And resentments for me is anything that bothers me. Anything that bothers me past the moment. It might be how I reacted in a situation. It might be um, how you reacted in a situation. It might be just the fact that you're wearing red and I hate that color. You know, I actually don't, so you guys both look very nice. Um, but, you know, it's like it literally could be the smallest little thing for the day, you know, and just something that bothered me past the moment. And those are the things that I need to stay on top of because those are the things that are ultimately going to block me. And I literally look at, you know how they have all of those pharmaceutical commercials or maybe just in New Jersey because it's the pharmaceutical capital of the world. Um, but you know how like they have that one pharmaceutical commercial where they show like the arteries clogging and there's this like vein and there's little bubbles going through and, and sometimes the bubbles get stuck. And next thing you know, like the vein is clogged, right? And the, the pathway is, is, is completely blocked off. That's totally what I picture in terms of resentments. It's like if I catch one and then another one comes and catches and then the third one sits on top of the second and then the fourth is almost like a game of Tetris, you know, that if I don't get rid of them as they come, if I don't actually deal with them as they come, then eventually it's going to get blocked. And I've had the experience of becoming blocked again. And what happens when I get blocked is I just go back and I do a whole new four step, <laughs> you know. So it's not like, you know, okay, fine, you miss some, you go back, you do a whole new four step, that's fine. I do that anyway just to make sure that my pathway is open in general. You know, and each time that I do do that, the resentments are less and less. 
which is good. I started off one time with 83, and then, you know, the next time it was I don't know how many, and then we keep getting a little less and less. So I'm catching them as they come. But for me, I, you know, every two years, every three years, I do a massive inventory just to make sure that my, my vein is open. Um, and so then it says that at the bottom of page 85, it says, uh, it starts talking about the sixth sense. And actually, you know, move up one paragraph. It gives us a 10-step prayer, and it gives us direction on what we can do. It talks about that every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why in step 11 it says, upon awakening, think about the 24 hours ahead. I live my life day by day. I know that I can never drink. I can never safely use alcohol, okay, because I know I am an alcoholic and I know what that means. But to live a spiritual way of life, I do live one day at a time. And that is the difference. That That's how the slogan for me is supposed to apply, is that day by day I wake up and I bring God's the vision of God's will into all my activities. Um, and that's really what my job is. And I'll ask God, you know, how can I best serve you today? Let thy will, not mine, be done. These thoughts are to go with us. These thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of will. So he's telling us that the proper use of will is when I'm thinking of other people. The proper use of will is when I'm thinking of how I can show up and how I can help you. And one of the lines that my first sponsor used to always point out to me, and I've, I hated them for the longest time because no matter what it was, it was go to the bottom of page 19 to the top of 20. But it says, most of us sense that real, real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinion are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. That is what step 10 is telling me to bring into everyday my affairs. That's what I'm supposed to bring. And the cool thing is, is that this isn't about being a bad person and being and getting good. This isn't necessarily even about being a sick person and getting well. It's about having been where we were at now when we turn our will and our life over to the care of God and we are cleaned out. It is about being useful. There is a thread of usefulness that runs throughout the book. They just use that word on page 19. They use it in the seven-step prayer. Remove from me whatever is blocking me from being useful to other people. And it says here in step 10 that basically our job is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. In other words, how can I be useful? And um, my 11-step practice is really what helps me stay on top of my step 10s. Um, my 11-step practice, I have never been somebody who can sit there in silence for a half hour at all. I am not one of those people. I have, you know, the whole meditation thing. I am a big believer in meditation but I'm also a believer that meditation means many, many things. Back in 1939, when they used the word, it meant contemplative thoughts. It didn't necessarily mean sitting in, you know, yoga position with your arms up saying namaste. That is a great way of doing it, but it's not the only way. You know, and I've gone through periods of my sobriety where I have done yoga, and yoga is great. I love it. If I had time for it now, I would do it. Um, and I've gone through periods of my sobriety where, you know, five, ten minutes in the morning, and it's not even necessarily pure silence. It's, you know, 
I have a bookshelf of recovery books and I'm like, mm, I shut my eyes and I go, thy will not mine be done. I pick one out and I open a page and I read for however long I feel like I need to read. And then I shut it and I sit quietly for a few minutes and I think about it and I think about my day. And I look out the window, I probably pet my cat. And then I say my prayers and I get up and I go. But there is a big difference in the day that I don't do that. That is a huge difference in those days when I don't do that. Um, and it's been at those times, there was a time right when I the divorce was starting that um, you could not get me to sit still. I, it just, it couldn't happen. I literally was up at like six in the morning and going until like two o'clock in the morning. Like it was just however I was coping with it. And uh, so my sponsor said that what she and I did was at 7.30 each morning, we called each other and um, we would read the meditation book. And Bill has a great, actually has the meditation book that I've been using for two years out there in God's care. And it's fabulous. I absolutely love it. But it's very simple. It's a very simple concept. It's I get up in the morning and I figure out what day it is, September 22nd today. Okay, thank you. September 22nd, and I open up to September 22nd, and I read September 22nd. And after I read September 22nd, I might reread it again. And I might read it a third time. And sometimes I might focus on one, one line. And sometimes it might just go completely over my head. And sometimes it really hits me. But then I'll put it down, and I'll shut my eyes, and I'll breathe. And I just focus on my breath. And if I can't focus on my breath, then, you know, I'll look out the window. But the point is, for me, is to show up for God. You know, the point is, is that I show up so he can try and come in. I show up to say, you know what, God? I know you keep me sober. I'm asking you to keep me sober today, if it's your will. I'm asking you to do whatever, you know, whatever you need to do with me today so I can go out there and do whatever you need me to do. That's basically what I'm asking you to do. I might say the 7-step prayer. I might say the 11-step prayer, the 10-step prayer. Whatever's going to come to me, that's what I say. And that time when I was going through the divorce, and I couldn't necessarily do this on my own, and I did it on the phone with my sponsor. And she would read hers, and I would read mine. And then we would talk about it. And it took 15 minutes, and I'm like, okay, have a good day. She says, have a good day. So there is no hard and fast rule of this. And if you go through step 11 in the big book, with like a fine tooth comb, it tells us that. One of the things that I love that it says is it says we shouldn't be shy on this. First of all, it's both prayer and meditation. It's both of them. Okay, we're not just talking about meditation when we talk about the 11 stuff. We're talking really about your relationship with God. You need to pray, which is speak. You need to meditate, which is listen. Just like any other relationship you have. You speak and you listen. That's how we go. That's how we communicate. So it talks first about the matter of prayer. And it says, um, you know, using it constantly. It works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. So for me, the proper attitude is the willingness and the openness, the laying aside the prejudice and the being willing that we've already talked about through all of the steps. And the working at it is the showing up every day to do it. You know, I don't necessarily, I don't, I am definitely not a guru. I am definitely not this like, you know, clear, clairvoyant, whatever with God. But I show up every day to do it. And um, it says, you know, we believe that you could, it says, it's easy to be vague on this matter, but we need, we have some definite and valuable suggestions. So in other words, this is an area where people need to develop it themselves. But at the same time, 
that is a very easy way to get away with not doing it. To be like, oh, you know, it's this, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, it's my practice, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But are you doing it? What are you doing? And it's important that we share with each other what we're doing. I now have a practice where I go through and I answer the nightly review on the page 86, all those questions in this first full paragraph. I go through and I answer all of those questions. And my nightly review, um, my 11-step practice now is that when I do my nightly review, if I have any resentments, I inventory them. If I have any fear, I read the paragraph on page, uh, the couple paragraphs on page 68 to bring me through the fear, to ask myself those questions, bring me to the other side of the fear. And then the next morning, I look at my day before. I review that, and I call one of my best friends down in North Carolina, and I tell her what was on my nightly review of anything that came up. And she tells me of what came up for her. And sometimes I get her voicemail, so I leave it on the voicemail, and sometimes she gets mine and vice versa. But I connect with another alcoholic for them to know where I'm at. So then that little vein doesn't get clogged so fast because I completely forgot about a resentment that I copped on Monday night. I left it on her voicemail, and yesterday she brought it up. She's like, hey, did you ever inventory that? I'm like, damn it, you remembered. No, I forgot. Okay, fine, I'll do it. You know, and to keep each other accountable like that, that's been a great practice. Anytime that, you know, you have things going on in your life to have, you know, keep people accountable, which has been awesome. But it literally sets out on page 86, on awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. Consider my plans for the day. Here's a prayer. We ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Um, by the time I got to step 10 and 11, it wasn't so much about my actions because I knew the right action. I knew what not to say. I knew what not to do. You know, I, I know that if I, you know, by telling you to go F yourself, that's not the nice and loving thing to say to somebody, right? Doesn't mean I didn't think it. Okay, so the next level of my spirituality is God, please direct my thinking. Because all action is born in thought. I don't do something unless I thought of it first. So part of step 10 and 11 for me is being aware of my thoughts because the thoughts are what is going to dictate the action that I just cleaned up. Okay. And, um, after that, in the next paragraph, it says, you know, basically when we face indecision, we take it directly to God. By the time that my girls get to step 11, they keep me posted. We talk about things that come up. But I am not here to tell you how to live your life. And I am not here to tell you what your God is, is or is not saying. I do not know. I go off the information you say. And it is my job at that point to pose questions and to pose considerations. So you can come to your truth. It's not my truth. It's your truth. And my job is your guide. So it is, I, I take it very seriously where, you know, I don't know what you should do. But I hear you saying this. Have you considered something else? You know, and um, and that's how I approach it at that point. But when we face indecision, it tells us we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or decision. Then we relax and take it easy. We do not struggle. And it goes into that part where it talks about, you know, sometimes being inexperienced. The whole thing is, is that once I ask God, I need to trust that he's going to perform. Once I ask God, I need to trust that he's going to come back. He's going to let me know. So I just go about my day. 
I just go about my day and it'll take care of itself when it takes care of itself. And if it hasn't taken care of itself by nightly inventory, by the nightly review questions, that's when I address it. And um, then the last thing I just want to step on, uh, touch on in step 11 is the fact on the bottom of page 87. This is the working step 11 throughout um, the day where it says, as we go through our day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves that we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times throughout the day, thy will be done. We are in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. I love that it uses the word excitement because I never would have thought of excitement as a, uh, I never would have thought of excitement as a negative. I consider fear negative, anger negative, worry negative. I, excitement, not negative. But when I came into sobriety some, one time, somebody told me that the goal of sobriety was to be able to go neutral, to really live your life like a lasagna noodle, right? Because I was constantly living my life like a roller coaster. It was like things were great. They were awesome. I was way up there. Things were bad. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to kill myself. You know, I am way down there, and I am back up, and I am down, and I'm twisting, and I'm back and forth, and you turn me up, you turn me down, go all over the place. By the time I get to step 11, when I really practice steps 10 and 11 in my daily life, I'm living much more like a lasagna noodle. Uh, you know, things are good. I'm like, oh, that's nice. This is cool. Very cool. I like it. Things are bad. I'm like, yeah, you know, things are worse, but things have been, you know, things are bad, but things have been worse. Whatever. You know, it'll pass. Everything. You become, I became more neutral. I wasn't so up and down, which, you know, I actually really like. Um, and it tells us that in step 11 on page 87, it tells us that this is a beginning, that we are supposed to go out and we are supposed to explore. So it tells us at the end, really, of the steps that we are supposed to go out and we are supposed to continually grow spiritually and explore what that means for you. But while you explore it, do not forget your base. Do not forget these principles because these principles are what are allowing you the freedom to go out and explore. And a lot of times I'll say to people, go enjoy what AA has given you, but do not let that take you away from AA. Because in step 12, we have a responsibility to turn around and give it back. What has been given to me is my responsibility to turn around and give it back. And it's actually the greatest gift of the entire program. And if you had told me in the beginning that the greatest gift of this entire program was going to be sitting down for hours at a time with people whose lives are falling apart, they can't stop drinking, they're lying, they're cheating, they're stealing from you, they're, you know, whatever, all of these awful things was going to really be the bright spot of my life. I'm like, that sounds horrible. You know, but it really has become the bright spot of my life. And the last year or two, I've had a lot more opportunities to actually go on 12-step calls um, with wet drunks, bringing them to detox or um, to rehabs or even just, you know, sitting with them because they can't go to detox. Um, and I have followed the principles as they're laid out and working with others. I literally, this I think it was this past year was the first time I actually stopped and bought alcohol for somebody on the way to detox. This girl... Um, would get seizures and she would get the DTs and she would get them pretty badly. And I was like, I do not want you seizing in my car. So I went and I bought her, we bought alcohol. We get back in the car, we give it to her. And she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, you need to drink this. She goes, I don't want to drink it. I'm like, drink it. 
She's like, I don't want to drink it. I'm literally in my car arguing with a woman who's half drunk, who's like, I don't want to drink it. I want help. And I was like, drink the vodka. Just drink it. And she was like, why are you making me drink? I thought you were my sponsor. I'm like, I am. Drink it. Please drink it. Because I was trying to explain to her, I can't have you go into a seizure on Route 80. I just can't. It's not, it's not good for you. Okay? I know this sounds strange. Drink it. You know? And um, I always thought people were crazy when they told me to do that. And or, um, you know, they did do that. But I did it this year. And I was like, wow. And now, of course, she's got like 50 days. And she thinks it's hilarious to tell everybody, my sponsor bought me alcohol and made me drink it. You know? I'm like, oh, great. Thanks for my reputation. Um, but, um, you know, I, I do a lot with girls what I was taught to do and or what was done with me. The very first time is I sit down with them and I go through the big book from the very, from the preface all the way to 164. We do not skip out on the forgotten chapters and we go page by page, word for word, line by line. And it takes a while. It definitely takes a while. The fastest I've ever had anybody do it is about nine to 10 months, um, once a week. And we have two hours a week or two hours every other week that we meet. And sometimes recently, um, I have, I have a very full life. I have an amazingly busy life, which is just awesome and I love it. So I might not necessarily have the time to sit down with eight women in a week. There's only seven days, right? So I meet with two of them on Wednesday nights. I meet with three people. Actually, I'm going, I meet with my sponsor and two other people on Monday nights, you know. Um, on Tuesdays, we alternate. On one Tuesday, I meet with somebody. On a different Tuesday, I meet with another one. And it's every other week, you know. And, and we have a scheduled time so we can sit down and I can see you face to face. I am not averse to making plans and to being flexible because I believe God wants us to be flexible. So if somebody can't meet me, I will use that time and we can do inventory on the phone. That's fine. No problem. Just show up. And, um, and basically that's, that's really what I've been taught. And, um, I know Dave's going to cover a lot of, uh, working with others and a lot of step 12 experience. The majority of my 12 step experience has been in sponsoring, um, other women. And I, I've probably, and I always tell women this when I start working with them, that your job is to show up and to be available. Your job is to try and be a channel. However God sees fit, whenever I go to meet with somebody, I say a prayer in the car before I get out of the car. I take a few minutes of quiet time and I ask God to use me as his channel. And then I get out of the car and I trust whatever comes out of my mouth was supposed to come out of my mouth. Because this is God working with them, and I am simply a vehicle who gets the privilege of being on the path. And I have learned so many, so many things from these incredible, incredible women. Um, and I find that the women that come into my life are the ones that I have a unique experience to help them with. And that's also amazing. So I do get to see a spiritual experience on a daily basis that way, because I do get to see God in my life. Um and so one of the things that I always tell them, because it's just been my experience, is that I've probably said yes over the last 13 years to sponsoring at least 150 women. I have probably gone through step three with maybe 50 of them. And I have probably gotten all the way to the end with maybe 15, maybe 10, 10 or 15. Um, people drop off in the middle of this process. That doesn't necessarily make it about me. It just is what it is, and it is their process, so they can do what they need to do. But my job is to be honest. My job is not to co-sign what you may think is... It's not to co-sign. I don't want to necessarily curse here, but it's not to co-sign you, 
My job is to be honest in terms of what I see. My job is also to be a guide and to encourage you to start using that working part of your body, that, that which is God. And um, it doesn't matter to me whether they make it to the end because whatever experience I've had with them is very special to me, and it's been an incredible learning lesson for me. Um, so I don't begrudge them in any way, shape, or form. Um, I'm just grateful I got to know them for whatever part that I got to know them of. Um, but it is absolutely amazing when you do have the experience of seeing somebody come full circle and you see that light in their eyes and you hear them share the message and you can see the fire in their soul. And it's just, it's awesome. So I love sobriety. I love being on the firing line of life. I know this thing is called the firing line. And, uh, if it weren't for a higher power, I know I would be dead. If it weren't for AA, I know I wouldn't have no higher power. And the biggest thing is, is that my God gets to keep me on the firing line of life today. I get to do so many things I would never get to do. I get to travel. I get to work. I get to hang out with you people. I get to connect with people I don't really know very well and to get to know them right afterwards. I get to do so many things in life that I so desperately Never in a million years thought I would ever be able to do because the only reason I came here was because I wasn't successfully dying. That was the only reason I came here. And now I can honestly stand before you and say that if it weren't for AA, I know I would have no will to live. Like when I got here, it took a while, but around eight, nine years sober, I remember looking at my sponsor and being like, you know what's amazing? She said, what? I said, miracle has happened. I actually want to wake up in the morning now. I actually walk down the sidewalk and I keep my head up and I look you in the eyes and I'm like, hey, how you doing? People at work, they're like, why are you so smiley? And I'm like, because life's awesome. And I work in an office where you probably normally wouldn't hear that. You know, it's not like I work in social work or anything. You know, I, I, uh, I work with pretty angry people. Um, but I'm always just so happy. And I'm happy because I know things could be a lot worse. And I know that I live on God's grace today, and I'm truly, truly grateful for that. So thank you so much for your patience last night and today and for the opportunity to share with you. It really has been an amazing experience for me. So thank you. One of the things that I wanted to go back, um, 10-step promises. I love the 10-step promises. I like them a lot more than the 9-step promises. Uh, and the reason being, and I read the 10-step promises a lot of times when I go into detox or rehab because it says to me some stuff that I never heard when I first came around. And um, I'll, I'll read them to me. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. Sanity will have returned. We will be, seldom be interested in liquor. I couldn't go a day without thinking about liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it like a hot flame. The opposite of what I was doing at that time. We react sanely and normally. We will find that this will happen automatically. Automatically, it's just going to happen. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor had been given without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle that we're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. 
We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep spiritually fit. To me, that's a great promise because I didn't go one day without thinking about alcohol. I didn't, I'll tell you, in early sobriety, um, uh, I, uh, I got a new job and, uh, and, I think I had maybe three months, and I just entered this position. And I had a sponsor, and I was going to meetings, and I was doing everything I was, you know, being told to do, but I had this new job. And, you know, at meetings, I was hearing all the stories, like if you go to a wedding, call somebody, take your own car, bring somebody from AA, all these things to um, protect you from alcohol. And um, so... I'm down at the office, which is like an hour away from where I live, and uh, my boss comes in and says, uh, everybody's meeting in the conference room. Come on. So we go in the conference room, and they close the door behind us. So there's about 20 of us in this conference room. And my boss pulls out a bottle of champagne and says, we got a big contract. We're going to celebrate. Now I'm locked in a room with 20 not alcoholics, with a bottle of champagne, and we all have glasses. And I'm in new early sobriety, and I'm like, what do I do? So instantly my mind is racing. It's going, it's going. I'm thinking, what do I do, what do I do? I've got like 10 seconds to make a decision. Do I take a sip? Who would know? It's only champagne. I never got drunk on champagne. Well, it's going to hurt if I take a sip. If I don't take a sip, they're going to know. They're going to know something's wrong. They're going to know I'm an alcoholic. They're going to they're find out. They're going to ask me why I didn't drink. All of this is going through my head. I can't at that moment say, you know, excuse me, can I just go call my sponsor um, before we take this, you know, champagne. There's no, there's no dial a friend. There's no lifeline, right? So I, I don't know what to do. I was not prepared from the meetings or from the guidance that I'd gotten at that point. I was not prepared to combat that that mind game, that insanity. I needed a solution that was going to protect me 24-7 because I just wasn't capable. And I, and I was hearing somebody talk about triggers at meetings. And I'll be honest with you, um, during that same period, uh, I was driving home and I got lost. And um, people were saying, you know, you, ooh, you, don't, you want to stay away from triggers. Well, I was driving home from a place that I normally went. I got lost. I went a different way. I'm driving down this different way. So instantly I'm already nervous. I'm already starting to get a little fearful. And I stop at a stoplight. And I'm at that stoplight. I turn to my right. There's a barber shop. The shades are drawn. The signs turned around and said closed, but the light was on. My head says... I bet those guys are in there drinking. I'd never been in a barbershop drinking. I didn't know if they ever were drinking. That was not a trigger. It was because of where I was at, I found the trigger. I found a reason to come up with an excuse. I found something that was going to take my mind there. Okay? So I can avoid as many triggers as I want. My mind's going to come up with new ones if I don't, if I don't change. This is telling me is if that I go through this process after step 10, and I don't suggest this to new people, but can I imagine being in a place where I can be neutral? 
And I share with them, and this is, again, after you do the work, I preface that, because I get a lot of people like, well, you know, I'm new, I shouldn't be going to a I know you're new, you shouldn't be going to a bar. But I've had a spiritual experience. A friend of mine who lives in uh, Tribeca, um, they would invite me over for dinner, and it was a dinner party every Thursday night. And the tradition was that they would provide the food and the guests would provide the wine. Okay, it's socially acceptable. I haven't had wine in 10 years, 15 years, but I'll buy a bottle of wine. So I would pick one that the label looked cool. You know, that's my criteria. Label looks cool. White, red, I don't care. Just it looks cool. And I would buy it and I would take it to them and I would say, here you go. And they knew, and they would have uh, they would have soda for me, and I would drink the soda. They would drink the wine. They would get drunk, and I would have a good time. I didn't freak out. I didn't go in the liquor store sweating. I was there for a purpose. It was a socially acceptable thing. I wanted to be socially acceptable. Um, so that's, but I was able to do it because I have a freedom now. Does that make sense? Okay. I don't want to live with fear anymore. I lived with fear all of my life. I want fear not to be a contributing factor to making decisions of what I do and where I go. All right? Because there's going to be times when I can't prevent that. Like, there are going to be times that I might have to buy booze for somebody um, or, or be in a situation where, you know, it's going to be necessary. Okay, so those are the ten-step promises. I like the ten-step promises a lot better than um, the nine-step promises. Okay, um, I had uh, Amory said I was going to get into twelve. We don't have a lot of time. Um, I want to share with you uh, eleven. Uh, um, talking about meditation. Um, a practice that I was fortunate enough to do last year, and this goes back to being open and willing. Um, you know, my meditative practice was a mishmash of different things. I've tried the guided meditations. I've tried um, the uh, silent meditations. I've tried different visual meditations. So I've tried a lot of different things. My, the best for me seemed to be um, the quiet meditation. And uh, um, But I wanted to expand. So a friend of mine was speaking, and she was talking about this meditation retreat she went on and actually Bill um, participates in this form of meditation. And it's a 10-day silent re retreat. I'm like, man, I have trouble staying silent for, for a half hour in meditation, let alone 10 days. Um, but she said in her sharing, she said, I, you know, somebody suggested to me, and I just didn't ask any questions, and I signed up. So that night I signed up, and I tried not to think about it. As the closer I got, the more I got nervous and was thinking about it. I'm like, I leave the TV on when I go to sleep. You know, like, there's going to be nothing. And uh, I was worried. Um, but uh, I survived the experience, and I learned a lot about myself and about my meditative practice and about, um, about sensations and things like that in this particular format. Um, but I also learned a lot about my own mind and where it goes and where it likes to take me and, and how easily it can drag me around in that space. Um, so did I survive? Yeah. It was no big, you know, it was nobody died, nobody got hurt. I made it through. Again, it's about being open and willing and pushing ourselves beyond what we think is possible. Okay? Don't sell yourself short. 
don't allow your fears to, to limit your experience. Okay? If there's something somebody suggests to you, stop. Don't think. Just do it. Just try it. Okay? Meditation was impossible for me in the beginning because there is no way I am going to sit still for more than three minutes. <laughs> it was just, there, I know myself and there is no way. I am just ADD and going all over the place. Um, eventually, I, it was possible. Eventually, I got put in a position where it was possible. So, you know, don't allow your, your mind and your own fears to stop you from uh, experiencing new things. Is that the last experience I'm going to have? No. Am I going to try other different things? Sure. Uh, I'm hoping to do that yearly. I'm hoping to do other things also thrown in. Um, but again, I'm trying to expand on that. Um, so going into uh, working with others, and I know you guys are fading fast. What would you do? Okay. Um, working with others, practical experience shows that nothing will so much uh, ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when... Other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. I love to go back to A Vision for You. Vision for You is a great chapter if you get a chance. Um, but uh, going back to um, Bob, uh, Bill when he's talking about his... Um, I don't want to read the whole thing. His call to the clergyman led him presently to a certain resident of the town. So Bill is in trouble. And you know, I'm sure most of you know the famous story, but Bill's in trouble. His, his business concern has failed. Um, he's in a strange town. He doesn't know anybody, uh, any other alcoholics, and he's sitting in this hotel. He's got bar at one end, phone at the other, okay? So he calls a clergyman. Uh, led him presently to a certain resident of the town who, though formerly able and respected, was then uh, nearing the nadir of alcoholic despair. It was the usual situation, home in jeopardy, wife ill, children distracted, bills in arrears, and standing uh, damaged. He had a desperate desire to stop but saw no way out, for he had earnest, earnestly tried many avenues of escape, painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be alcoholic. When our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. A spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. Now just try to put, your, put, your, uh, put yourself in that position. Think of the actual fear and just the desperation Bill had. This is new. There's no AA. There's no meeting around the corner. There's no hotline. There's no um, sponsor. There's, there's no, you know, there's no sponsor. There's Bill, and he's got this idea and this idea instilled in him from the Archer Group that you know, if he reaches out and helps another, it would help. And it's 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 a stretch, at best. But he doesn't want to drink so badly that he's willing to try. He's got faith that this is going to work and he's going to try. Okay? And that sheer desperation is what 
this, I need to try to bring this desperation to the, the table when I'm talking about this or doing this. His sheer desperation is to stay sober and to carry this message and do God's work. Okay, So he gets and he finds this guy that's in desperation as well. When a friend related his experience, the man agreed no amount of willpower might muster up uh, stop the drinking for, for long. A spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary. But price seemed high upon the basis suggested. He told them he lived in a constant worry about those who might find out about his alcoholism. He had, of course, the family alcoholic obsession that few knew of his drinking. Why, he argued, would he lose the remainder of his business only to bring still more suffering to his family or by foolishly admitting his plight to people from whom he had made his livelihood? He, could, he, would, he would do anything, he said, but that. So he's got one reservation. Being intrigued, however, he invited a friend to his home. Sometime later, he just thought he was getting control of his liquor situation. He went on a roaring bender. Dr. Bob's last hurrah. For him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. He saw that he would have to face his problems squarely, that God might give him mastery. One morning, he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared that, uh, what his trouble had been. He found himself surprisingly well-received and learned that many knew of his drinking. Surprise, surprise. Um, stepping into his car, he made the rounds of people he had hurt. He trembled as he went about, for he might mean ruin, particularly to a person in his line of business. At midnight he came home exhausted but very happy. He, had, he has not had a drink since. As we shall see, he now means a great deal to his community, and major, major liabilities in 30 years of hard drinking have been repaired in four. So Bill, you know, Bill finds Dr. Bob, uh, and he brings him this information. Um, and they share their information. I do believe that at that time they each had a piece of the puzzle. Uh, and when those two pieces came together, it made sense. Even with all of that, Bob still went on his last bender. You know, he still had to try one more time. But then when he finally felt defeated, he reached out and took these, these tools and he picked them up and he remained sober. So Bill, out of sheer desperation and faith in, in this process and faith in his higher power, reached out, found the one guy in town that, um, that possibly this could work with. They got together and then Bill was able, uh, Dr. Bob was able to stay sober. So now they have two. Two people in the world that is what we call now AA. So, you know, the two of them had each other at that point. Bill stayed down there for, uh, I think it was three months. Uh, somebody could probably correct me. Bill stayed down there for three months. They were fine. They could just hang out, right? They had each other. They just call each other up or hang out together. Was that enough? No. Then they went and looked for number three. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Um, so they went and found three. They, she, they called this nurse and said, yes, we've got a corker. I love that corker. He's just beating up a couple of nurses. It's our kind of guy. Goes off and head complete when he's drinking, but he's good chap when he's sober, even though he's been here eight times in the last six months. So they found a real corker. 
But they found another guy. What I love about this, and this is something that I'm trying to, to bring back to my program, is that it's not, it's not so defined sponsor-sponsee relationship. It was Bill found uh, Dr. Bob and they needed each other. When they found each other, they knew they could not stay sober without continually finding somebody else to help. So the two of them went out and found three. When they got three and three was okay, then the three of them went out and found four. That, to me, is how a home group builds, okay? That's what, you know, and how do I know? And when I go into a, uh, into a room, how do I know that I have what that one guy needs to hear? I don't know that. But with three, he might hear something. So I'm, I'm up in the ante. I'm, I'm bringing more information. One of us is going to have the answer for him. So I'm, I'm opening up the odds that this guy's going to have a better chance. I, I think, I think we've just gotten way too defined on this. Sponsor has all the answers for everybody. Um, I've gotten way off the, the, the idea. I've gotten back off the idea that I can help every single person. I can get every single person sober just because I have the experience and the tools. I don't know that. I have to get away from me being getting people sober to me being present when they get sober. Me being present for the miracle. I'm just kind of an observer and I'm a guide. I can guide them to the tools. I can be present and I, I, I'm lucky enough to be present when they have a spiritual experience. But is it me? Can I take the credit? No. It's the higher power. In their, it's the higher power in their lives. Okay? That makes sense? Um, the last couple of years, you know, in the last couple of years, um, there's been a real shift, and, I, and I'm working a lot more and seeing a lot more um, in sober uh, living environments, sober houses. Um, these places are uh, are in vast need of mentorship. Um, I don't even call it sponsorship anymore. It's not so much sponsorship. Um, and the reason I say that is because you got houses now that are filled with uh, 10, 15, 20 guys, women, uh, that are all new in sobriety. You know, they all have less than maybe 60 days, 90 days uh, a year. Uh, and, and they're sitting around talking and hanging out. And so you got 23 hours a day that they're not being guided by anybody with some experience or some sobriety. And then they go to a meeting and then they come back and they hang out. Um, so what they really need is people with some experience on how to live life to sit around and ask questions about. Um, I, when, I, when I'm at, at a, a sober house, um, I'll tell you, some of the greatest moments I've had is maybe 2 o'clock in the morning smoking a cigarette and a guy asked me a question about spirituality. I don't sponsor. Am I going to tell him, you know what, go to your sponsor? No. I'm going to address the question, and we have a serious conversation about it, and we talk about it. Um, I might have somebody ask me about just simply, do, do I tell my employer I have a felony? You know, like those kinds of things, those kind of questions are coming up, but they're relying on each other, you know, and, and we need to be present in more situations than just meetings because they're coming out of the detoxes, they're coming out of the rehabs, and they're ending up in these living facilities now. It, rehabs are not what they used to be. Um, the rehab I used to carry a message to, um, they got rid of rehab. They're now down to detox, three-day detox, that's it. 
That's all they offer. Um, so what they do is they get them in there, they detox them, and then they ship them out to a halfway house or a sober living environment. Um, so they're not getting a lot of time. They're getting thrown back into society. Um, and, you know, they're, it, it's a pivotal point. You know, they have a lot, they have a choice. Um, and so, again, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities there. When people ask me, where, you know, where do you find sponsees? Great place. Great place. You know, I started just taking a, a I started my sponsor, uh, Chris, took a workshop there. And, uh, and, um, he was doing the step workshop. And, uh, I saw a lot of people were asking questions. So I said, you know what, I'll come on, I'll come on Sunday and I'll just sit and answer questions. So I said, I'll come every Sunday at two o'clock and I'll hang out for two hours. How's that? And if you have a question, you have a question. If you don't, you don't. And that's what I did. And it started getting bigger and bigger. We turned it into a little book book meeting. Um, but again, you know, I didn't have any expectations. They didn't have any expectations. But I tried to provide myself and be present, uh, be of service, you know, to carry a message. Um, that's just a suggestion. Um, also, again, I try to be open with everybody that I know about my situation. I don't do it in a sense uh, to brag. I just let them know because I never know where that next person's going to come from. Excuse me, two weeks ago we sat down with a, a friend of mine. She called me out of desperation. Her friend's husband is drinking. He's kind of going to AA meetings. So um, I called her and I had her meet with a woman and myself um, to talk first. Uh, we, we went, we started, we went right back to the book. Uh, we met with her first to get all the information about the alcoholic. Um, and also we wanted to give her information for Alan on. Uh, so we sat and we talked to her for about an hour. She took all our information. Um, and I, I gave her my information to give to her husband if he wanted to call me. Um, we haven't heard from either one of them since. Um, but, uh, I feel we've helped her. I feel we helped my friend and educated her, and hopefully, you know, someday I'll meet this guy that uh, needed the help. Um, he's just, you know, we try, and it's hard to explain to somebody, but it's, we just, he's not ready. But I found um, with working with guys, too, I'm trying to go more into families. Um, recently, my work has been a lot more with the families, uh, because not only am I having guys go back out, and the families are standing there going, what's going on? Um, but, uh, you know, they, they're not really aware of the, the things that are offered for them as well. Um, I mean, I've, I've had to go to bail somebody out, you know, go to the judge to get a letter, um, in driving the wife around with the son, pick them up at county. Uh, I've had, you know, we've had corkers, <laughs> we've had, um, we, uh, I'm not going to go into that. Um, I, I've got this one guy and he always, he, he relapses all the time and he always shows up with a bag of beer. We call it his bag of beers. He, he comes in with a bag of beers. There's, there's box wine and he's got his bag of beers and it's like five Budweiser's in a bag. And, you know, it's sad to watch, but there's just, you know, there's nothing, it's been, He's been relapsing for probably three years. 
And he, we've gone, we've done everything that we can. We've, we've, I've had him, I've driven him around for days, um, not letting him out of my sight. We've gone through the steps. I've gotten, we've gotten him up to, um, amends. Um, we have gotten, um, we tried to get him to go to rehab. He's been an outpatient. He, um, he's been in detox, um, many, 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 many times. Um, you know, and unfortunately, each time it gets worse and worse, his body's just going to give out at some point. Um, I wish I had the magic answer. I wish I had that that cure that I could just you know touch him and he would be okay. But I just don't have that. And and it sounds brutal, but over the years I've just gotten more flexible or acceptable that um, there are some people I just can't help. Um, I can pray for them, but I can't help them. Um, I think at the most, uh, I had 15 guys at once. And, and I don't suggest that, but um, it always seemed to work out for me. Oh, firing. We were talking about firing earlier. I go back and forth. I clearly, I, you know, I was completely against firing, and then I was firing. And then I'm not, you know, I, I where I stand with it is... Um, uh, I really don't have a right to fire anybody. I just keep presenting them the information. And uh, as long as they continue to do it, I will continue to work with them. As long as they're showing some kind of willingness, I will continue. I will never cut them off. Um, but, uh, um, you know, at some point I'm, I'm not helping them as much as, uh, you know, it, it's, I'd rather shift them to somebody else that might be able to help them. I had an interesting situation recently. Um, they, they left. Um, uh, I was approached about working with a woman, and um, for specific reasons, uh, I accepted the, the, um, the, accepted her as a, a sponsee. Um, and in working with her, um, I found that I was. It was probably not the best person to work with her. And again, this, this, I hope. If I can take ego out of it, um, I felt like she was, it was, she was losing it. She was slipping and she was falling backwards and, and she needed help. And so I, I, I handed her to a group of women that I'm very close with and I said, you guys need, you need to nurture her. You need to take her. Um, and they did and she's doing incredible at this point. Um, whatever reason the communication was just not going, she was not getting it or she was feeling too comfortable or whatever, I saw her slipping backwards, so I had to make a decision that was best for her. It's not about ego and me again. It's not, oh, damn it, you're going to do what I say you're going to do, and, and I don't push it to detriment of them. I just try the best that I can do, and sometimes the best that I can do is not working with me. It's reality. I don't believe I can get everybody sober. Okay. Um, well, um, I do a lot of speaking commitments, and Amory was uh, saying, you know, we get to. Um, when I was a little kid, I I, uh, I promised my mother I was going to take her to Ireland when I grew up, and uh, um, she actually won a trip to Ireland when I was uh, in my t early 20s, but I was too busy to take her. Uh, I was running a bar, and um, uh, so I never got to take her. Uh, and after she passed away in sobriety, I was asked to do a workshop in Dublin. 
Um, so I finally got to, to go over there. Um, but these are the gifts that we have. You know, we, we're, we're, we're invited to places that we never would have gone before. I, I didn't have a passport. You know, I didn't travel very far outside of the United States, except for Juarez, Mexico. But, um, I didn't travel far. You know, it was just way too much effort to plan a trip. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm very careful about, um, I've always had a commitment. I don't, you know, I honestly, I don't consider commitments service work. Um, I think there's a little misinterpretation, but I've always had a commitment ever since I came in. I mean, in the old days, it used to be ashtray commitments, which were huge. Um, I don't know how many people remember ashtray commitments, um, but, uh, you know, that was just something that you did because you were a part of. Service commitments to me are being a part of my home group. Um, I've always had in my home group a commitment, whether it be treasurer, coffee maker, greeter, you know, whatever. I always had a commitment. And I, I came from the school of you made the commitment. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm not getting the same sense as it used to be in the old days. Uh, listen to me, the old days. But it's just, I don't get the sense of commitments as being as high priority anymore. Um, but, uh, but that's the school that we came from is that you always have a commitment. And I felt it always got me there. You know, and I, and I talk, my home group's Tuesday night. Um, I don't know how many, I can probably on two hands count how many times I've missed it in the last ten years. Um, but it doesn't seem hard to me. It just to me, it's not even a, it's a no-brainer. Um, if somebody asks me, "Do you want to go to dinner?" I say, "Not, yeah, sure, any night except Tuesday." That's easy. Yeah, I can I can work around Tuesday all seven in the other seven days of the week, no problem. Um, but everybody seems to have a problem lately. <laughs> it's, you know, with Tuesday, they can't make a commitment to Tuesday night. I don't know why. We can't get a coffee maker now. We get, you can't get a coffee maker. I'm, I'm not a big person on the, you know, the coffee maker, but come on. Just somebody to show up, put the coffee pot on, and help put chairs up, okay? Um, so again, I think, you know, we gotta get back to that home group mentality. I always believed in commitments, and I've always had commitments. Um, uh, whether it be speaking commitments or something, but just giving service to a particular home group um, so that that home group survives. And, and, and it's giving back to AA. You know, my family can, generations of alcoholics can give a lot of gratitude to AA for what it's done to the, my family particularly. Um, you know, we've had a lot of them die without any program, and we've had a couple of us live with a program. Um, what I hope and like is the fact that we're just at least breaking a cycle. You know, it's not just so much even the drinking. It's the the insane behaviors that have ge over generation and generation have been perpetuated. And it's it's crazy the patterns that you can see. And hopefully we've stopped that pattern. Um, so hopefully, again, Anne-Marie and I both appreciate uh, you putting up with us for the last day and a half um, and coming and having an experience. I hope you guys had an experience. Um, I hope you continue the dialogue. Again, this is all our opinion, so it's up for grabs. You know, it, it, we come at us if you want. 
um, or have your own discussion about what you want to do in your own program in your own group. Um, but do, do have discussions. Do be open with each other. We need you. You know, we can't do this without you. Um, AA needs you. I need you. Robert John needs you. You know, uh, I'm sorry, Robert needs you. Um, uh, we all need you. So please, please continue on. Uh, we had a great time, uh, you know, and hopefully someday we can see you again somewhere on the uh, road to happy destiny. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.